Okay, disillusioned, distracted, and discontent, searching for a biblical antidote to the present cultural moment. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> I am disillusioned, distracted, and discontent at my title. <laughs> and, and, and this is how it normally works. You get an email saying, Sunday's in July. Um, you know, what's your topic and what's your title? So I respond, and I give them a topic, and I said, but I haven't got a title yet. Uh, so could I have a few more days to think about it? And, and they say, yep, no problem. And of course, the intention is to spend the next few days crafting this incredible title. Uh, but that doesn't happen uh, because life does happen. And then the email comes through, we're going to print this afternoon, we really need your title now. So what, what ends up happening is that I submit a title that I've thought about for five minutes And I haven't really finished the talk, so I don't know whether the title accurately reflects the talk. And then when it comes to the Sunday, I am very distracted and discontent with the title. Uh, let me just back up a little bit and try and explain what the goal of this seminar uh, was originally. About a year ago, I realized that a number of issues that had come uh, my way within the church when you really think through those issues at a fundamental level, they were issues of discontentment. Uh, not all of them, but I just realized a number of issues that had come to me were, in essence, issues of discontentment. And so I thought to myself, I really want to think through what the Bible says about contentment and maybe even put together a, a sermon series on that topic. And that led to Sundays in July, and, and the aim was to do a two-part series on the topic of contentment. At that point, I would just pause and say, if you do want to read a good book on contentment, the classic that many of you are aware of uh, is written by a man called Jeremiah Burroughs. It's a Puritan paperback, and it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. That would be the go-to book that I'd recommend to all of you on the topic of contentment. What I realized as I was working through and thinking about what the Bible says about contentment and discontentment is that it's actually a very, very complex issue. And it's not as simple as simply looking up every text that has the word contentment in it and, hey, presto, you've got a magic formula. Uh, we like formulas and we like quick fixes. And this is an area where there is no quick fix. And so as I was thinking through the topic of contentment, the, the seminar that I had in my mind just kept growing and growing and growing. Uh, what is normally true is that if a person is discontent, there are a number of other issues going on as well. There are other issues that are kind of attaching themselves or feeding that sense of discontentment. And so the seminar kept growing And uh, it was really kind of difficult to nail down what exactly am I, am I going to say and what am I trying to achieve here. To that end, I would say don't pay too much attention to the title, at least not those three Ds at the beginning. Uh, they're not my points today, and I'm not striving for alliteration in any sense. If you are going to linger on any part of the title, it would be that very last part of the subheading Uh, that is the present cultural moment. What you need to realize is that we live in a moment. Uh, we live in a particular time in history, and we live in a particular place in the world. 
And those two things contribute to the issues that we face, and we're in a moment. Uh, and we think, people typically think, that the moment that they live in in history is the most important moment, and it never is. Uh, this moment will pass. And it will pass very quickly, and future generations will look back at us, and they'll laugh about the things that we used to do as a people and the things that we used to believe as a society and so on and so forth. Um, it will pass, and so the issues that we face are, in some senses, unique to us. Um, now, what, what defines those issues or what defines the society we live in, the answer is culture. One of the biggest mistakes that people make is to think that politics is what defines the time we live in. Politics never leads. Politics always follows. Politics is not the determining factor in shaping a society or a culture. Uh, politics always follows the views and the thoughts and the desires and the wishes of the society, the, the masses. And so what we need to do in order to understand discontentment at an individual level is to zoom out and to look at society. And really, that's what part one of this seminar series is about. It is trying to analyze the prevailing issues that face us as a society. Uh, I want to make a few caveats at this point. Today is a fairly negative presentation. Um, I do think there are some positive observations that we could make about the time in which we live. There are a number of very positive things that we could say about the society and the time and the moment in which we live. But my goal is to consider what are the issues. Uh, secondly, I would say that you have to understand what I'm, what I'm observing. The observations I make today relate mostly to society. I'm not trying to speak about the church per se. So we really are zooming out and saying, as a society, what are the issues? I'm not speaking directly about the church. Now, with that said, it's important to, to know that there is always, sadly, a direction of influence between those two entities, society and the church, and it's only ever in one direction. Sadly, it's always the case that there is a direction of influence from society into the church. So that if the church is not careful, then over time, views that are represented in society start to get affirmed within the church. So I'm representing today issues that face society, not the church, but be mindful of that direction of influence that is always present. Uh, thirdly, I'm not trying to give you this morning a, a sermon from a text. We're not going to open our Bibles and work through a text, and that's okay. Um, Sundays in July gives us an avenue to do these kind of things, and we're kind of thinking through some of the gray areas. This is not an expository sermon. Next week, what I want to do is to open the Bible and to look at just one idea, one doctrine that we find in Scripture. And my argument will be that this one doctrine really addresses most, if not all, of the issues that I'm going to talk about today. Okay, and if we have time, then I'll just give you a sneak preview as to, to what we're going to talk about next week. Um, I have nine observations today. 
You know, it's funny, when I uh, started preaching, which was not all that long ago, I had this kind of conviction that I was not going to be a three-point preacher and that my points would not be alliterated. And I had no reason for that, but it was a fairly strong conviction in me that I was not going to bring three points to the pulpit every week and, and, and there's no way they're all going to begin with D <laughs> or P. P is the easiest letter to alliterate with. Uh, and then what happened over time is that I just found, I mean, week after week, you know what? The, the passage just divides into three. <laughs> and, and, and when you look at what is happening in each point, they all begin with the same letter. And so those sermons, I was kind of annoyed at myself every time I preached them. This morning, I'm rejoicing that I have nine observations and there is no alliteration. There is no sense of parallelism at all in my points. Uh, so as I said, I don't know. We might get done really early. We've got lots of time on our hands, uh, in which case that's fine, and we just have time to fellowship. We might not get through all nine, and that's fine also. So we'll just see how we go. Okay. Um, observation number one. What are the issues facing this present cultural moment? Number one, we are no longer citizens. We are no longer citizens. Now, I know immediately, at least in some of your minds, there is a sense of irony. On July 4th weekend, here's the Brit talking to you guys <laughs> about the fact that we're not citizens. It is a sad reality that you guys are no longer citizens of the empire. <laughs> and you do have to come to terms with that. But I'm not talking about the color of your passport. I'm not talking about any paperwork that you may have or may not have. The word citizen, in its truest sense, in its original sense, meant somebody who belongs to a city. Or you might say more fundamentally, somebody who belongs amongst other people. So it had nothing to do with your nationality or your passport, but it had everything to do with your relationship with those around you. And so citizenship truly understood entailed an awareness of your dependence upon other people. To be a citizen was to acknowledge that you belonged amongst these people and that you were dependent upon them. Uh, Plato said in The Republic that the roots of a just city is the mutual recognition of our insufficiency. The roots of a just city is the mutual recognition of our insufficiency. You see, proper citizenship begins with an acknowledgement that we are incredibly dependent upon one another, that we need each other. Uh, the Puritan William Perkins in the 16th century talked about citizenship as a vocation. He said, citizenship is a vocation or a calling ordained and imposed upon man for the common good because none of us is God. Because none of us is God. So we live 
as citizens in a state of mutual dependence upon one another. The problem is that we have lost our awareness of that dependence. So I'm not saying that we've lost the dependence itself. In fact, our lives are still highly interconnected and we are still very, very, very much dependent upon one another. What is true, though, is that we live in a time where we have lost our awareness of that dependence upon one another. So just think, by way of example, uh, of your journey here to church this morning. You exercised, in a very long-term way, a dependence upon the engineers that designed your car for you to even be able to have a car. You exercised a dependence upon the mechanics who built your car and who serviced your car in order for you to be able to drive it this morning. You then exercised a dependence on those that maintain the roads in order for you to be able to drive on the road. You exercised a dependence upon the church security staff who so faithfully open up the campus early every morning in order to park in the parking lot. And then you exercise a dependence on the facility staff who laid out all the chairs that you're sitting on, or maybe not. And then we all exercise a dependence on the sound staff in order that I could have a microphone on today. And yet probably it is true that not one of us thought about any of those people at any point this morning. We are highly dependent upon one another and our lives are very, very interconnected. But we have lost the awareness of our dependence. Uh, think about the fact that it is very difficult today when you call a business or a company, it's actually very difficult to speak to someone. Have you noticed that? It's very difficult to speak to a person. And there's almost a sense in which we understand that we need to exercise this dependence by virtue of the fact that they try to make the computer sound as human-like as possible, <laughs> and they, I think, really insult your intelligence by adding that keyboard sound that now has come in, <laughs> as if to say, this really is a person taking notes, and we know it's not. But the fact remains that we can't really speak to anyone when we call a company. Think about your neighborhood. You might know the names of your neighbors, maybe. You might even know a few things about them. But you probably are not involved in their lives or aware of how your lives intersect in the way that a neighborhood would have been all of 50 years ago. We've lost sight of our interdependence, and it's not a good thing. Why is this not a good thing? Why is it problematic? If William Perkins was right that citizenship is a calling put upon us because we are not God, then to lose the awareness of our mutual dependence is, in a sense, to start to perceive ourselves as more godlike than we are. It is, start, is to start to view ourselves as fine, okay, if we're independent. We think that we are self-made, self-makers, and that there isn't a problem with that. And what that then does is it prompts us to exercise our citizenship even less. Because we believe that we can exercise independent from those around us, that we can live our lives independent from those around us, we start to pursue that very path. 
This generates over time a depersonalized society, a society that is depersonalized. We may live in a city around many other people, but we are not citizens. We are not living in the truest sense of the word as citizens. It's been said that we're the people of patios, not porches. What does that mean? We're the people of patios, not porches. Both a patio and a porch is an extension of your house into the outside world, but there's a key difference. The porch on the front is where you sit and you're inviting the world to engage with your family. You sit of an evening and the world passes by and it's an open invitation to engage with your family. The patio sends a very different message. The patios are in the back of the house and it says, please do not engage with my family. We're living highly independent, depersonalized lives. We're not citizens. And I think that one of the main catalysts for discontentment today is that we are trying to live these highly individualistic lives when God made us to live in community. God made us to live in community, depending on one another and recognizing our own insufficiencies. Point number one, we're no longer citizens. That leads to point number two, we are now consumers. We are now consumers. If you were to ask what's the opposite of a citizen, the answer is a consumer. The opposite of a citizen is a consumer. Uh, how is that so? A citizen is one that recognizes their insufficiency and their dependence upon others. A consumer is one who acts primarily according to preference That is, they do not act out of a sense of responsibility. They act primarily according to self-interest. That is not according to the interest or the benefit of others. And then necessarily, because the consumer is acting out of self-interest, they are someone who is living increasingly in a state of isolation. If all of your decisions are made based on your own self-interest, not based on a sense of responsibility towards others and not based on any consideration of the benefit of others, then you are forcing yourself down a path, increasingly so, of isolationism. And that is a consumer. Now, we've said a number of times uh, that we live in a consumer society. And when people say that, they normally are referring to the most evident manifestation of our consumerism, which is our spending habits. Uh, we are a people that like stuff. We like to have a lot of stuff. We like to purchase, to buy. And we're, we're, we're making those purchases based on self-preference. In fact, we do that now to the degree that it hurts us. Uh, we're a generation that spends now and considers how we're going to pay for it later, which is incredibly irresponsible and is often to our own detriment. You need to think about consumerism beyond simply spending habits. That is the most evident manifestation of consumeristic tendencies, but consumerism is a way of life. It's a worldview. It's a way of thinking about the world. It's, it's acting according to self-preference without any sense of responsibility to those around you. Now, how is it that we have got to a point where we are a consumer society? The answer is this. At a societal level, we are possibly the first generation who have not had to face the prospect of near-term death. 
we have not been faced with the prospect of near-term death. Now, let me just explain that and unpack that a little bit. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, the average lifespan was 30 years. After the Industrial Revolution, now it's hovering around about 80, maybe a little bit more. Up until the Industrial Revolution, you could say that the the story of the human race was essentially a story of considering how it is that we're going to survive. Every generation prior to the Industrial Revolution was faced with the prospect of near-term death, either simply by virtue of the circumstances they were in or by particular events that faced them, such as war or famine or any kind of natural disaster that would wipe out a generation. Infant mortality rates prior to the Industrial Revolution were incredibly high compared to relative to what they are today. And that's not the case for us. We are a generation that is not faced with the prospect of near-term death. Now, this is not a criticism. There's a number of things that I'm going to say today that are not criticisms. They're simply observations, but they're observations that do have consequences. Thankfully, we are able to give ourselves to the consideration of things other than how do we survive. So, pre-industrial revolution, the main question facing any society was, how are we going to survive? We don't ask that question. It's assumed that we will. And so the question that we start to ask as a society is quite simply, what do I do with my time? That's the question that we ask. Whether we realize it or not, the question that we're consumed with is, what do I do with my time? That leads us to become a people who are more and more defined by the idea of leisure because we are not facing near-term death. And that's when we start to exercise our consumeristic tendencies. That's when we start to have the ability to make choices based on preference because we don't need to think about our survival. We can make choices based on self-interest because we're not involved in this corporate struggle to simply exist. And we can care less about our responsibility towards others because it looks like just about everyone's doing okay. We've actually become very good at exercising those consumeristic tendencies. We're not helped by choice. Consumerism and choice go hand in hand. They are best friends. And we live in an age where we have more choice than we know what to do with. Uh, I went to the store the other day. There was this weird thing called Fourth of July, and (laughs) y'all were celebrating something. (laughs) So I, I just said, whatever, fine. I'll take a day off work. (laughs) So I went to the store and my son said, please, can you get pickles for the burgers? Absolutely. I mean, there were 20 plus types of pickles. I'm not saying there were 20 jars of pickles or there were 20 makes. 20 plus different types of pickles for your burgers. That was a painful visit to the store for me. 
And on and on and on, we have more choice than we know what to do with. And choice options promote, encourage consumeristic tendencies, acting out of self-interest with little care for our responsibility towards others. What's the problem with all of this? The problem is simply consumerism promises happiness. Uh, Think about the billboard. You're driving on the road, you pass the billboard, it's for a cell phone. What do you see on that advert? You see a family with this cell phone and everybody in that photo is grinning ear to ear. What's the message they're trying to communicate? The implicit message is if if you buy this, then you'll be happy. If you buy this, then you'll be happy. Consumerism promises happiness and it never delivers. It fails to deliver every single time. Socrates said, he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. He who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. And the biblical teaching is that our happiness is derived from the exact opposite of consumerism. The Bible teaches that we will find happiness when we act out of a sense of responsibility towards others and and when we live in community, and we call that in the church service. Funny thing. So consumerism, number two, we are now consumers, plays a big part in our present discontent. Point number three, we act out according to preference and not authority. So a lot of these points overlap and are interconnected. One follows on from the other. Number three, we act according to preference and not authority. This is a direct derivative of the consumer age in which we live. Uh, Consumerism, as I said, is a way of life. It's a worldview. It's a way of thinking. It's not simply related to our shopping habits. Over time, as we have had become accustomed to having choices in the aisles, choices when we buy pickles, choices when we buy ice cream, we have started to look for choices in other areas of life. Consumerism is not simply speaking about our spending habits. It's a worldview. As we've become a people accustomed to having choice in the shopping aisles, we have started to search for choices in other areas of life, more foundational areas of life, areas of life that naturally would have previously resisted choice. Areas of life which in previous generations would not be up for discussion. By way of example, previous generations would have accepted that marriage was only ever defined as an exclusive union between one man and one woman for the benefit of the community. It didn't matter what you wanted. It didn't matter if you had a preference outside of that definition. There was no choice available in that discussion. And now that's not the case. Now there are choices. There are options on the table. Similarly, going to the other end of that relationship, it wasn't that long ago where it was pretty difficult to get a divorce. It was pretty difficult to get a divorce. Uh, Charles Dickens, I was reading recently, when he divorced his wife, had to write a public letter of explanation that was put in a national newspaper explaining the divorce. Uh, It was a scandal. 
Now, today, in all states, no-fault divorce is available such that you can pretty much end your marriage on demand. We have options. We want choices in more foundational areas of life. And we could go on and on. Perhaps the most pressing issue today is that of gender. It would have been inconceivable for me to stand here 20 years ago and say that you can choose whether you're a man or a woman. That was never a discussion. And now it's ludicrous for me to say you can't choose. Now, note carefully where the emphasis lies. The emphasis within this thing called consumerism does not lie on the object of the choice. The emphasis lies on the choosing. This is a really important point. Don't think that the emphasis is on the object of the choice. The emphasis lies in the act of choosing. So society doesn't care whether I identify as a man or a woman. What society cares about is that I have been allowed to make the choice. Society does not care whether you allow your baby to live or whether you have an abortion. The important thing is that you were allowed to express your preference. The emphasis is not on the object of the choice. It is on the act of choosing. And that's a very dangerous emphasis. Why is it a dangerous emphasis? When the emphasis is on the act of choosing, what that does eventually is it renders every single option as equally valid. Every option is equally valid. No one option is more valid than the other. And to put it a different way, what that means is that nobody is allowed to say that one option is more valid than the other. What that starts to do over time is it removes any sense of authority in society. Nobody has the voice to say this option is preferable, more valid than that option. It starts to rob society of any sense of authority. And we see this being played out by virtue of the fact the church is having an increasingly less smaller, more quiet voice in the public sphere. Because we would say that one choice is more valid than the other, but that's no longer allowed, so we don't get to speak into those conversations. So point three, we act according to preference and not authority. Point four, we do not know the difference between a need and a want. We don't know the difference between a need and a want. By substituting authority for preference... We blur the line between a need and a want, or if we put it another way, it has created in us an issue of discernment. We no longer are able to tell the difference. We get to enjoy things that previous generations were not able to enjoy. We are the most comfortable, richest people that have ever lived. Fact. As we look at our options... And as we start to act according to preference, we flex our consumeristic muscles, we start to believe that because something is available and because we have a desire for it, therefore it must be a need. 
we very quickly start to believe that because something is available and because we have a desire for it, therefore it must be a need. And the line between a need and a want very quickly becomes blurred. And the outcome of that immediately is that we forfeit our contentment. Why? Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if we have food and clothing, we will be content. It's worth meditating upon those words. If we have food and clothing, we will be content. When we make our wants into needs, we essentially change that truth. We change that verse. Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content. We say, if we have food, clothing, and, then we'll be content. When we blur that line between a need and a want, and the things that we want have now become needs, we say, if we have food and clothing and the new iPhone, then we'll be content. (laughs) If we have food and clothing and a new kitchen, then I'll be content. If we have food and clothing and a new car, then I'll be content. You see... When you consider what Paul says to Timothy, you realize that contentment is readily available to just about everyone in this room. If we have food and clothing, then I'll be content. Contentment is available to all of us pretty readily. What we do by choice is we push it away. By changing that verse, by blurring the lie between a need and a want, we push our contentment away by saying, if we have food, clothing, and then I'll be content. We are continually forfeiting our contentment. And again, consumerism doesn't just pertain to our buying habits. It relates to every area of life. It's um, a fascinating thought, at least for me, to think about 100, maybe 200 years ago, if your name was Smith, you would have been a metal worker. You would have been a blacksmith, period. There would be no discussion. You would not be given a choice. And this is the important part. There would have been no sense of injustice about that. I think if you had been able to speak to the blacksmiths of that time, they would have not expressed any sense of discontentment. This was their lot in life, and that would be entirely appropriate. Uh, I think about my previous pastor's dad. So when we were back in the UK, uh, my pastor, he was nearing retirement. His dad had worked down the coal mines in Wales his whole life. He went down at the age of 14, And he went down the coal mines every day of his life until he retired in his 70s. Now, he had a lot of stories, for sure, but there was no sense of discontentment. There was no sense of injustice on his part. He might have expressed what he would have liked to have done with his life, but not out of resentment. That was what was given to him. He didn't have the choice, and that was A-OK. Now, again, I'm not necessarily saying it's a bad thing to be where we are. Uh, I'm grateful that I had options when I was thinking through jobs and career paths. I actually did some searching. Twists comes from twist 
originally from the twist in a river, which meant I would have been a, a river worker of some sort. And I'm glad that my life hasn't been spent drudging up trash from the bottom of a river. I had options. But we have to understand that where we live today and, and, the, and the privileged position that we're in has consequences. We do not know the difference between a need and a want. And the immediate effect of blurring that line is to forfeit our contentment every single time. Number five, we are marked by a restlessness. We are marked by a restlessness. I'm leaning here on an observation made by a man called Tocqueville, who some of you will know. Uh, he was a French politician who came to America in the 1800s. He could see that France was inevitably moving down the path of democracy. They were transitioning from being an aristocratic society to a democratic society. And so he said, we need to know about democracy. So I'm going to the world leaders in this. I'm going to go to America and see how democracy works. And he wrote a book that you can buy today called Democracy in America. It's a thriller. Uh, I recommend that you read it, or at least that you read portions of it, because what is fascinating is how many times Tocqueville observed a trajectory that has now come to pass. How many times he said, it seems to me the American people are wired in this way, and it will result in such and such, and that's exactly where we are today. One of his observations was that the Americans are a restless people. Now, how did he come to that conclusion? Any democracy, when it functions properly, functions according to the principles of freedom and equality. Freedom and equality. Now, they have to be held in balance. Tocqueville observed that the American people seem to be more preoccupied with the freedom than the equality. And I would say if that was true back then in the 1800s, even more so today. Now, in a sense, it stands to reason. Uh, America was a country that was founded as an experiment, in a sense, in classical liberalism. Classical liberalism was simply a thought system that said a man should be able to break free from any external circumstances that have been imposed upon him. If he hasn't had a say in his circumstances, he should be able to break free from them. External circumstances imposed upon him at the core of the American ideal is an ability to break free from those circumstances, a bit like I was saying with the job example. And Thomas Jefferson was one that particularly championed this idea. And so it kind of took hold in the American mindset. And today, the truth is that we are a people who have become obsessed with the notion of freedom. <clears throat> there is a danger to this. If we do not keep that sense of freedom in check, in moderation, then the desire that we have to break free from externally imposed circumstances can be to our harm, can start to harm us. What happens eventually is that we become a people that want to break free from all and any circumstance, whether it be good or bad. We become a people who want to break free from every set of perceived external circumstances. 
without any consideration as to whether those circumstances are helping us. What that means is that we eventually become a restless people. Eventually, we become a people that are always searching for a better option. We are always looking for another new norm. We are always wanting to change things just because. We look to change them and establish a new norm, and we arrive at the new norm, we start to want to change that also. Uh, we are a people who perpetually view our present circumstances as being restrictive or less than ideal. Going back to that example of the job, it's often said of millennials that they can't stay in any one job for any time. Uh, by the age of 30, they'll have five or six jobs. They'll have had five or six jobs. They don't stick at anything for very long and that they always think they're missing out on something. I'm not a huge fan about, of talking about millennials in, as if to say that their issues are unique to them. I really do think, actually, that characterizes all of society to a greater or lesser extent. I think as a society, we no longer demonstrate longevity in, in a job or an occupation. As a society, we don't stick at anything for very long, and it's because we're restless. We're always searching for something better. We think that we're missing out. In fact, I realized this firsthand uh, a few months ago. Um, Laura suggested we watch a movie one evening, and so we, we went to um, Amazon Prime, and you know we're just looking for a movie to watch that evening, and... Uh, for the next 30 minutes, 45 minutes, <laughs> all we did was watch trailers. <laughs> and in the end, we switched the thing off and went to bed. <laughs> all we did was watch trailers. And as I analyzed it in a geeky way, I thought, why did we do that? And the answer is because we were driven by a fear that there was a better movie out there. Every time we found something that we thought this would be fun to watch, we wouldn't click play because we said, hold off, let's just see what else is out there. <laughs> now, that's a, that's a silly illustration, but the issue is actually quite serious because our restlessness eventually turns into anxiety and fear. This is the problem with being a restless people is that we start to be driven by fear. We are anxious, and we think that we're missing out on something. And of course, we understand that the Bible teaches that contentment and fear cannot go hand in hand. So we are marked by a restlessness which robs us of our contentment. Point number six, we've become escape artists. We have become escape artists. Where does this fear lead? Oftentimes, the fear that sits upon us as a society will lead towards escapism. Uh, one way in which we cope with fear is to seek to escape, to seek to abandon. Now, this point, perhaps, is the point that is most 
uh, aided by technological advances of all the points that I've made this morning. This one, perhaps more than any, has been aided by technological advancements. And again, I want to be crystal clear. uh, I'm not saying that those advances in technology are inherently bad. I'm not saying that the internet is sinful or that cell phones are sinful. What I'm saying is we have to realize where we are and that there are consequences to the benefits that we enjoy. So, 100 years ago, uh, the norm was to work six days a week. It was only the, the upper classes of society that would get two days off a week. The norm was to work six days a week. You would have one day off, and that day would be labeled as recreation. And the words here are very, very important. Recreation, in its truest sense, means exactly what it sounds like to recreate. Recreation is to recreate. What does that mean? It means that on the man's one day off, he would seek, in a sense, to recreate himself. That is to recharge and refresh himself in preparation for going back into work on Monday morning. So you can see how, as a society, we used to be so much more focused on productivity, on producing, on on being workers. The one day off was focused on recreation to recreate the individual so that they would be ready to enter back into the workplace on Monday. What would you do with your day of recreation? One thing that many, many people would do would be to read a book. Now, why is that recreation? Why is that helpful to an individual to recharge? Because when you read a book, you are engaged in a creative work, a creative work that is not your labor. It's not your work work Monday through Saturday. Nonetheless, it's a creative act. You pick up a a novel and you read the words that the author has written and the author is inviting you to create that world in your mind. There's an element of imagination involved as you read the tales of Narnia and you read about Peter and Lucy and Aslan and you read long and lengthy descriptions of these individuals and the author is inviting you to think upon what Peter looks like. And he's inviting you to picture Aslan in your head. And there is something energizing and refreshing about that creative act that comes about when you read a book. Fast forward about 100 years. Well, we now have two days off, maybe more. Um, We no longer call it recreation. We now call it leisure. Leisure. (laughs) The... The word choice is very important. We've abandoned this term recreation. We no longer think about how do I best equip myself to go back into work on Monday morning. Leisure, at its root, it's a Latin word, at its root, simply has the connotation of permissiveness. When you're thinking about leisure, you're essentially asking the question, what am I allowed to do? What can I do? In a sense, you're saying, where are the boundaries? It's not considering about the refreshing and the recharging of the soul for work. At the same time, what we saw is a movement from the word-based culture to the image-based culture. So we are not a word-based society in the way that other societies have been. We are an image-based society. We communicate now primarily in images. The movie replaced the book. Have you ever wondered why the movie is never as satisfying as the book? 
It's never the case that you go to the movie and say that was better than the book. Now, why is that? In part, it's because they just didn't do a good job at representing the plot line. In part, it's because they had to cut things out that you actually really enjoy. But the main reason is this. It's because you have been shut out from the creative act that the book invited you into. You show up to the movie and Peter and Lucy and Aslan have already been created. And you weren't consulted. You weren't asked to shape them. See, some people think it's because Peter doesn't look like the way I imagined him. That's not the reason. It's because you didn't even get a say in what he looked like. The movie robs you entirely of the creative act. And so you find it altogether unsatisfying. It doesn't fresh and refresh and prepare you to go out and do new things. It actually leaves you quite flat. Now, fast forward just a little bit more, and we find ourselves in something of a, of a, of a new age where there is now a creative act, but it's not concerning the characters in the story. It actually concerns you. The age in which we live is one where there is an emphasis on you being able to define and create yourself with zero consequences. So think about social media. This is the easiest example. You are allowed to project the image of yourself to the world. You get to define what they see of you with no questions asked. You get to, to publish or to post the image of yourself that you want the world to see. You're not defining the characters. You're not being left out of the creative act, but you're engaging in an altogether new creative act, one where you get to redefine yourself with very few consequences. And we could say the same about the, the gaming world. The games now are involving the person themselves defining themselves within this imaginary world. And the problem is that as you define yourself, you define yourself again with very few consequences. All risk has been removed. You now get to enjoy a form of life that is very, very uncomplicated. A form of life that doesn't actually represent real life. It doesn't represent all of the struggles that are truly there in your life. You are projecting an image of yourself that says, I've got all of this together. I don't know any struggles. My kids are happy all of the time. <laughs> We joke about it when, when people see photos of our family and our kids. You know, Laura and I will say that was the one second that day when everyone was smiling. <laughs> the problem is that contentment is not found by escaping. Contentment is a skill that must be learned And it must be learned within the complications of real life. It must be learned within the reality of a broken world. Escaping is never the answer. Six, we have become escape artists. Seven, <clears throat> we now put off responsibility. We put off responsibility. Uh, an author called Christian Smith, social scientist, wrote two books over the last... I think maybe 20 years, one called Soul Searching, one called Souls in Transition. He studied a very large number of teenagers in America, and he tracked with them all the way into adulthood. 
And he was trying to analyze the secularizing influences on their life. Um, or to, to, to flip that question on its head, he was trying to analyze what is it, humanly speaking, that keeps a child within the religious stream that they've been brought up in after they've left the home? Uh, for us, we would be asking the question, what is it that keeps a young person in church when they're no longer under their parents' authority? From a human perspective, he came up with three conclusions. He said, for those that have stayed within their religious stream, for those that have stayed in church when their parents are no longer there on a Sunday morning saying, you've got to get up and go to church, normally, as they grew up, they had at least one parent living out a meaningful faith in the home articulating the gospel clearly and the subservient convictions that come with that. You know, and I hear that and I think we cannot, I think maybe one of the greatest dangers within parenting is that we begin to assume that our children know what it is we believe. We just assume that they know what we believe, both the gospel itself and all of the convictions that come out of that, and Christian Smith was saying there is great value in being specific, articulating what the gospel is and all of the convictions that come with that in the home to your children repeatedly. Second, he says normally there has been at least one other adult within the church who is not their parent making an investment in them at least one other adult, not their parent, making a meaningful investment in this young person. And again, I ponder that, and I think we cannot uh, overestimate the benefit of people in the church influencing my children with regards to biblical truth. Uh, I want my children to grow up knowing it's not just mom and dad that believe this. Uh, they have a, a special relationship with other adults who have greatly impacted them. Third conclusion, he says, normally those that have stayed within the church have assumed responsibility at the proper time. And that's the point I want to focus on. They've assumed responsibility at the proper time. We have become a people that have resisted assuming responsibility at a young age, uh, increasingly so. So, you know, it's instructive to note the word teenager was invented around the 1940s. It wasn't a word before 1940. Before 1940, and in most other generations around the world prior to this one right now, when somebody transitioned from 12 to 13, they just made the jump from childhood to adulthood. A young adult, but nevertheless an adult. When they were 13 or 14, they were no longer considered to be a child. They were now an adult. With that came some privileges, for sure. But so also there came responsibility. The word teenager really hasn't helped us. Now, this is not the sum total of the problem, but, but the word itself is not helpful. We've created a bracket from, say, 13 up to 20, 
whereby we try to shield our children from the responsibilities that other generations saw entirely appropriate to put upon them. We have now become a people that seek to keep our children back from work rather than prepare them for work. And that bracket, I would say, has been increasing. It keeps increasing such that we are now putting off assuming responsibilities for longer and longer and longer. People are getting married far later. People are having children far later. And what Christian Smith does is he tries to analyze that one conclusion, that one observation, those that stayed in the church assumed responsibility at a proper age. He says, you know what? When they get married at 20 and then they have a child, they realize, yikes, we need help. It's a very sobering thing to be a parent. And they say, we need people around us. And they stick in the church because they realize that there are people here to help them. Now, there are many, many problems to this, but one of them is that if we have a generation of people that won't assume responsibility for themselves, then we can't assume responsibility for each other. Societies in the past that have flourished have typically had generation upon generation coming up who know how to take charge not only of their own lives, but those of others. As we have people that, that are no longer equipped to do that, Society as a whole is suffering. And as we start to feel the pains of that, so we end up in a position of feeling unsatisfied and discontent. We put off responsibility. Uh, Number eight, nearly there, we have lost a sense of virtue. We have lost a sense of virtue. Um, What does that mean? Virtue, if you were to look it up, or if I was just to ask you for a definition, we would probably think that it means um, obtaining a moral standard. If somebody is virtuous, they have obtained a moral standard. It's not altogether wrong, but again, at its core, the word virtue, a Latin root, means strength. And that's important because virtue, before it means obtaining a moral standard, it means exercising strength. And specifically, strength in and of yourself, that is self-control. The essence of virtue is that if if you're virtuous, you are able to exercise self-control to your benefit. You're exercising self-control so as to reach a certain standard. Um, At a societal level we need to exercise virtue. We understand that we need to exercise virtue corporately, we need to exercise self-control collectively in order to flourish. And I think, you know, social scientists talk about this in terms of freedom. Um, We like freedom and we want freedom, and it's a good thing, but we understand that that freedom has to be controlled. We cannot simply pursue freedom unrestricted. Uh, It's been said that freedom is its own worst enemy. If you pursue freedom unrestricted, then it starts to become something that undermines itself. There's no restrictions at all. I I saw this played out. We know it intuitively. I went to uh, to the LA Science Center a few weeks ago with my kids. Uh, Just me, okay? Six children, LA Science Center. 
My goal for the day was to bring home the same six children that I took to the Eli Science Center. No blood injuries, no broken bones. That was the goal. We got home that night. I brought the same six kids home. We got home that night. We're having dinner. Laura said, kids, tell me one thing you learned at the science center. I said, Laura, that was not the goal of the day. <laughs> it was not an educational trip. We just had to survive today. And I was impressed that at least one of my children could say something they'd learned. Anyway, at one point during the day, our youngest, Patrick, who is coming up on two, he's in his stroller and he's buckled in so I don't lose him. And, you know, the other kids are exploring and he wants out and he's, he's struggling around and he wants to get out. And it wasn't that busy. So I thought, okay, let's do this. Unbuckled him. He gets out. So I've just given him freedom. What's the first thing he does? It's to reach up for my hand. That's not the response I'm looking for. That's not the point of the story. I trust that you know he loves me, okay? That's, that's given. I'm trying to illustrate the point about freedom. He knows intuitively, as a two-year-old, that he has to restrain his freedom. He has to impose limits. So he's given freedom, and immediately he seeks to restrain that freedom by holding my hand. Because if he doesn't, then he gets lost. It becomes self-imploding. It undermines itself. As a society, the same is true. As we pursue freedom, it has to be restricted. And sadly, because we are so preoccupied with freedom, we've lost all sense of restraint or self-control. Uh, I read an essay recently uh, highlighting this very point. The essay was called Morals and Manners. Uh, I think the author was Patrick Deneen. You should read it if you can. Uh, he makes the point um, by focusing on the most everyday of things, that is cutlery, the knife and fork. He says, why is it <clears throat> that we use a knife and fork when we eat? It is not to make eating easier. It would be easier to eat with our hands. Come to our place around six o'clock every evening and, and you'll see that. Talking about my kids now. Or with Patrick, it'd be easier to take the hands out altogether and just go face to plate, right? <laughs> we don't use a knife and fork because it makes it easier. We use a knife and fork as a means of restraining ourselves. It actually makes eating harder, but why do we do it? Because we understand that if we don't, then we'll become animals. We become animals when we eat. So at the most foundational level, we know that we have to restrain our liberty. Now, listen, he goes on to say, if morals are connected to manners, and I think there is a connection, it is telling that we have become a society who more and more and more are seeking to eat with our hands. How often we buy food now that is designed to be eaten with our hands. In fact, more than that, our consideration is to eat with our hands whilst walking. We've abandoned the sense of sitting at the table as a means of restraining ourselves. And I think he rightly concludes, 
To walk down the street eating a sandwich with our hands is an example of the fact that we don't have the self-control to sit at a table and eat with a knife and fork. Now, it's a silly illustration, but the point is this. If we're doing it in that area, then we're doing it in far more important areas. We are failing to exercise the self-control that is needed in order to flourish as a society. We have lost our sense of virtue. And so I think we're we're slowly starting to realize at a societal level the self-imploding reality of that unhindered freedom. At an individualistic level, this is problematic because Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed, not free in an unhindered way. The freedom that Jesus gives to us is a freedom that is supposed to be hindered and restrained by his commands. And we are slowly abandoning that sense of restraint. Okay, number nine, and last point, we are overly invested in the present. We are overly invested in the present. Uh, T.S. Eliot argued that the defining characteristic of the human race is not the opposable thumb, nor is it our ability with language. He said the defining characteristic of the human race is our ability to take stock of the past, to look forward to the future, and to bring both to bear at the same time on the present. We seem to have a unique ability that animals don't have, to look back, to remember the past, to consider the past, while at the same time considering the future, and to bring both to bear on the present, to make our decisions in light of what has gone before and what is coming ahead. Not only does this set us apart, but it becomes an incredibly important feature in the way we live. Uh, Think about them in turn. As we look back, as we are a people that have a sense of memory, that memory creates a debt, a sense of debt that is good and proper and right. So I I don't have memories of D-Day. The the memories that we have of D-Day are a collective memory. And it's important that we keep those memories alive because what they do is they foster within us a sense of debt to the soldiers that fought for us. And it's good that we have that sense of debt. Um, it's, It's not only debt, but it's gratitude. And it starts to, and it rightly should, affect the way we make decisions today. Similarly, as we look forward and we understand that we're not the end game, but there's another generation quickly coming up behind us, what that does is it fosters a sense of responsibility, a right and a proper sense of responsibility. We don't simply make decisions based on ourselves and our own interests, but hopefully we make decisions based on how it's going to benefit or affect those that come after us. And we are the generation of the now. So more so than ever before, we have severed those connections with the past and the future And we live increasingly in the now. It wasn't that long ago when American schoolchildren were made to memorize the Gettysburg Address. And then why did they have to do that? Because it instilled in them a sense of where they've come from. 
a sense of gratitude and debt to those that were before. Uh, We are consumed with the immediate. And again, I don't think technology helps us in this sense. One One of the priorities of the time in which we live is efficiency. And we want things now, we want it immediately and we don't really think about the consequences, and and that does start to translate and transfer to how we think about the world generally. We start to believe that we're self-made self-makers. We fail to realize that we're only here today because of those that came before us. We start to lose the connection between us and the previous generation, and we don't realize the way in which they worked and they fought in order that we could enjoy the life that we enjoy today. And similarly... We don't think in the same way about the future. And that means that we have an unhealthy suspicion of all things past. We tend to reject things that are of tradition. We assume that it's wrong. And we look to the future with uncertainty, supposing that we can't in any way properly prepare for the future, and therefore we may as well just live for the now. And it's not difficult to see how this relates to discontentment, we cannot properly understand ourselves unless we understand ourselves as part of a temporal spectrum. We don't know who we are unless we know where we've come from and where we're going. We lose all sense of why we do the things the way we do them, why we think the way we think if we don't think rightly about the past and the future. And so our decisions are not properly informed, and that leads to discontentment. Now, Laura said to me last night, you have to give them a sneak preview of next week, otherwise this morning will be so depressing. (laughs) So we have a few minutes to do that. And it was my intention to do that. Uh, I've just made nine observations this morning about some of the issues that we face as a society. And there are more that we could talk about. Um, How does the Bible respond to these issues? There's many things we could say. Uh, There is, I think, one doctrine that most emphatically addresses these problems. What we've been talking about today would be classed as uh, sociology or more broadly anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man. So who are we and why do we do these things? You would, you would categorize this talk according to the, the, the theological strand of anthropology. And the problem so often is that we begin in the wrong place. A biblical anthropology has to begin on page one of your Bible. Specifically, a biblical anthropology has to begin with the fact that you and I are created in the image of God. We are created as God's image in his likeness. Now, if you search the scriptures for that doctrine, you're not going to find many texts that mention it. But the scarcity of the references do not do justice to the significance of the doctrine. And what I mean by that is that there are very few truths that are as significant when it relates to understanding who you are as the simple truth that you are made in the image of God. Now, it probably doesn't mean what you think it means. That's okay. Next week, I want to spend some time talking about 
the idea that we're made as God's image according to his likeness and how that rightly affects every single thing we do. When you understand what it means to be created in the image of God, it affects the way you think, it affects the way you interact with others, it tells you and informs you as to why some things are important and other things are not important. It should set a trajectory for everything that you do in life, not predominantly informing the what you do, but more importantly, informing how you do it. And I think that all of the issues we've been talking about today are addressed by that one truth of being created in God's image. When we understand it and when we live according to it, then we will be living in line with God's purposes for us as people. Then we will find happiness and contentment. And then we will bring much glory to God. Let's close now in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you that you're sovereign, uh, that you know all things. You know all that we've spoken about today and, and so much more. And we trust in your sovereignty and in your wisdom. You have placed us here at this time in this society. And we understand that not only is that not an accident, but that you intend for us to thrive to flourish, and to bring you glory in this cultural moment. So we do pray that you would help us to continue to think uh, throughout this week and then next Sunday, specifically about the truth that we're made in your image and how that rightly addresses so many of the problems that we face. We do commit ourselves to you. We ask for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen.